electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Live from the Nasdaq market site overlooking New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. I'm Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Dami, Karen Feinerman, and Pete Najarian, co-founder of MarketRebellion.com. Tonight on Fast, the epic battle brewing over payment for order flow. Former FDIC Chair Sheila Baer coming out swinging today. She says the SEC needs to do more to level the playing field. She will join us ahead. Then you'll hear from a man whose business pays for order flow. Virtu CEO Douglas Sifu will join us exclusively. He says the assumptions made and Bears op-ed are absurd. We've got both sides of the debate coming up. Plus, we're watching a developing story on Coinbase. That stock under pressure as the SEC takes aim. Why regulators are calling for a crackdown in its crypto lending business. And later, a plot twist for AMC. The chain, theater chain operator dropping big money and big star power on its first ever nationwide TV ad. But will it pay off? We'll debate that. We start off with a trio of earnings alerts tonight. Lululemon, RH, and GameStop all on the move after their latest results. We're digging into each one. We kick things off with Lulu, which is trading at all-time highs after its report. Seema Modi's got the details. Seema. Hey, Melissa, that is right. Lululemon shares surging in after-hours trade to what would be an all-time high in regular session. So here's a story. The athletic apparel retailer topping analyst estimates on both the top and bottom line, along with a better-than-expected outlook for the third quarter and for the year. The company getting a boost from shoppers continuing to spend on workout apparel. Chief Financial Officer Megan Frank said our performance in the second quarter was driven by a strong response to our product offering, improving productivity in our stores and sustained strength in e-commerce. Lululemon sales in North America are rising 63% year over year, international sales up 49%. And even going into this report, Wall Street was very bullish on Lulu. Channel checks from Piper Sandler showing strong sellouts for both women's and men's apparel, along with a pickup in growth in Mirror, the company they acquired. And while the company did see continued supply chain headwinds, Piper Sandler also noting that Lulu is more insulated from freight challenges, given that the company historically air freights more of its product versus its peers. The conference call is underway. Stock, wow, up nearly 12% here in extended trade. Melissa. What a move. Seema, thank you. Seema Modi with the details on Lulu. By the way, Nike as well as Under Armour are both higher in the after-hours session on the back of this. Guy Adami, what do you make of this quarter? Ridiculous is, the, is in one word. I mean, operating <laughs> margins came in 20.6%. The street was looking, I think, for 15.9%, up from 136 a year ago. You know, if Tim were here, we'd talk about Kager. But on a two-year Kager, the growth rate was just mm-hmm. off the charts. Their, their, um, their inventories are in line, which suggests to me, given the sales growth they have, margins will be even better next quarter. The only knock on this company that people have been making now for years is valuation. That, that knock has been unwarranted, and clearly, given this quarter, it feels like it's off to the races. I want to give kudos to the four analysts yesterday. I think Cowan is high on the street, but it was Cowan, MKM, Piper, and Telsey all raised their price targets ahead of earnings today. Um, you know, I think 475 is high in the street given this quarter. I think the stock could trade there. 
Um, in case your Fast Money translator is not working, compound annual growth rate is Kager. Uh, Karen Feinerman, what, what, do you, what did you make of the It's funny that Seema had mentioned that air freight was an advantage given all the supply chain disruptions. I'm sure in the past that was sort of a knock on the company in terms of eating into margins more so than, than a cheaper way of getting goods to its stores. But here we are. It, it worked out great. Yeah, it worked out great. I mean, that guy really got to the heart of it, which was the operating margin growth. Mm -hmm. So it starts with great gross margin growth. So they had very good pricing, right? Not promotional at all. And that's, and that's sort of generally how they run, but it just shows the strength of the brand. And then that operating margin. So as revenues grew gigantically, they're able to leverage their expenses. And that's how you get operating margin growth like that. The magnitude of that growth is really extraordinary. I just saw a couple of uh, little bits from the conference call that they had some supply constraints. So the quarter would have actually even been better had they been able to get all the product and that they are already hitting their expecting to hit their 2023 goals in the next year. So that's kind of amazing. It's at an all time high. It should be at an all time high. It should be expensive. Uh, very sadly, though, I no longer own it. And uh, that was it's that is a huge bummer. But Supply kudos to them. Execution was outstanding. Supply constraints, Pete, means uh, sales deferred and not sales denied. And I asked Maybe I'm asking you from firsthand experience, you being a, a Lululemon customer. <laughs> if you go there and something's not in stock, what happens? <laughs> well, if it's not in stock, they're going to ship it to you. <laughs> they're going to take care of you. I mean, you know, here's the most amazing thing about the quarter for me, though, Mel, as we look at, at all these numbers. Men's is where they are growing. Uh, you know, and, and it's still in the infancy, as they have said many, many times. There's still plenty of growth there, 69% of sales continues to be women. So um, as they grow on the men's side of things, and I like the fact that Seema did point out the mirror as well, I thought that acquisition for $500 million, I think they stole it. I think that was a great opportunity, and they took advantage of it. Calvin McDonald, the CEO, has done an unbelievable job of navigating things. But they also were in such a great position, Mel, going into this whole thing, going into the pandemic, coming out now of the pandemic, all of that, that this is a company that not only thrived during as people got much more casual, but they continue to thrive. And I think there are a lot of folks out there, new people, that are finding out more and more about Lululemon. And I'm talking about older, like past the age of 30. I think there are, are, are droves of people that are going to find themselves in Lulu clothing because A, it's comfortable. B, it looks very, very, it's getting much more of a corporate look and yet stays very comfortable. And you look at the margins, you look at everything that, that both Karen and, and Guy were talking about in terms of the numbers. The numbers are outstanding. The, the DTC numbers were great. And the one knock on this stock for a long period of time has been, well, the PE is stretched. Well, I would mm -hmm. challenge this to say, why doesn't anybody ever say that about Nike? Nike trades about 40 times. Their growth isn't anything close to this company, and yet it doesn't really come up when you talk about Nike. I find that very interesting. I think Lulu's got a lot more room to the upside. It's been a name I've been in for a long time. I have absolutely no thoughts at all about getting rid of this stock. Yeah, that's exactly where I was going to go with this, Pete. Um, forward PE on Lulu is about 55. Nike's about 37, 38 guy. Under Armour's about 35. Both, again, in the higher in the after hour session on the back of Lulu's quarter. Um, which one do you like the best? So, see, you didn't, even, you didn't do it. You're asking me to do it. So you're giving me a would you rather <laughs> rather. And for me, it's pretty easy. Look, I think Under Armour's getting dragged up just on the back of this respectfully. Um, 
But it's, it's Lululemon. It, it continues to be. It's not a knock on Nike. It's just you look at this quarter. I mean, Karen hit the nail on the head. When you see that type of operating margins, given what the expectations were, it's just a company that's running so much better. And then you look at the sales growth and then look at the underlying inventory build. I mean, it suggests that they're just going to continue to do exactly the same. So good for them. Again, kudos to those analysts yesterday that raised their price targets. And I think that 475, I think that's what Cowan has high on the street. I think that's absolutely in reach here. All right, let's uh, get to RH now, the parent company of Restoration Hardware. That call kicked off at the top of the hour. Let's get back to Seema Modi, who's got the details. Seema. Let's talk about high-end furniture, uh, Melissa. This is another retailer moving higher in extended trade, RH, uh, delivering an earnings report really on all fronts. The company beating analyst estimates on both earnings and revenue, raising its revenue growth outlook for fiscal 2021. The company providing some perspective on how it's dealing with supply chain issues. Inventory on its balance sheet did increase by 32% due to the disruptions and delays it's seeing. It's also expecting a manufacturing restart in Vietnam in October after a closure uh, due to the Delta variant. The company is delaying RH Contemporary, its line, till spring of 2022. And that RH Guest House in New York City will open later than planned. Also, another trend we've seen this earnings season, it's raising prices. It's raising prices in most product categories to offset higher costs related to shipping and higher raw material prices. And earnings uh, conference call does get underway just right now. On the housing front, the stock has been, uh, of course, a beneficiary of this acceleration to the suburbs. And the company did talk about that on its earnings report. Shares, you can see, up about 51% year to date. Melissa, I'll send it back to you. All right, Seema, thank you. Seema Modi. Um, Karen Feinerman, you've been doing some digging. They've also announced sort of a, I don't want to say a strategy shift, but a new, a new strategy. Right, I guess some tangential strategies. So, you know, they talk about being sort of an arbiter of taste and they want to sort of build, it seems like, a restoration hardware world where you can go to restoration hardware Napa, you can go to restoration hardware hotels. They even talk about um, other lines beside contemporary, um, which they may have uh, announced those before. RH Jets, that seemed new to me. Um, RH Yachts, that seemed new to me. Please correct me if I'm wrong because I haven't... I haven't heard that before, but that but so it seems rather broad, right? Um, generally, I'm somewhat skeptical when companies go into different lines that uh, I mean, this isn't wholly outside, but it's somewhat outside of their core competency. But they have been able to execute on so many fronts. So uh, I'm impressed with the management team. How could you not be? It's just uh, I get a little nervous about spreading themselves too thin, maybe, with all these other things. Maybe they're kind of licensing things. I'm not really sure. That is maybe a little bit, certainly something worth watching because um, that's going to be hard for management to do all of those things. Yeah, we are creating bespoke experiences like RH Unfill, an integration of food, wine, art, and design. Um, the yacht that is available for charter guy, in case you're wondering, in the Caribbean and Mediterranean, <laughs> where the wealthy and affluent visit and vacation. Is this a stretch? Or is this a logical extension of the brand? Well, I don't know what bespoke is. And when they come up with restoration hardware inner tube, maybe I'll get involved. But is it a stretch? Yeah, it's a stretch, but you've got to give them the benefit of the doubt. And listen, every time we've talked about retailers for the last couple of years, one name that comes up, along with William Sonoma, has been restoration hardware. And for good reason. Now, Louise Yamada says... 
the longer in outer space, the greater the room to the upside or something like that. I'm sure I'm butchering her saying, but that's exactly what's been going on since April when this stock topped out. It's been going sideways ever since. I would make an argument. I think Karen and Pete might agree that the stock might actually be cheaper now than it was prior to earnings given this beat. I think the stock takes out the all-time high of 740. I think it continues to go higher from here. The longer the base, the higher in space. I know Pete knew that. Do you agree with that, Guy yeah, on, right. on, your, oh, on his take on the stock? I, I do, although I will say this. I mean, when you look at Williams-Sonoma and you look at what that P.E. is, uh, Guy, and you take a look at it, it's in the upper teens, and then you look over at Restoration Hardware, they're not even close to one another. But that being said, the growth is there. They continue to impress. The transformational process into digital has been very, very impressive, and that's something they're working very dip- hard on to get that uh, taken care of. So there's a lot of different reasons to look at this report and be very, very impressed with what they're doing, supply chain restra- uh, restraints that they've got. It really was an, an unbelievable quarter they were able to put up. The problem that I have right now is just valuation itself. But yes, it could go a little bit higher, I think. It could test some of those highs. It was up at 740 not that terribly long ago. I just look at it and I think, you know what, if I'm going to have a would I rather, I'm going to go with William Sonoma. Seth, would you rather? 12 minutes into the show, Pete. That's a record, I think. Uh, we want to round this whole thing out with GameStop. <laughs> GameStop shares are dropping after its latest report. Frank Holland has been on the call, has the details. Hey, Frank. Hey there, Melissa. Just on the call a second ago that's still ongoing, CEO Matt Furlong really focused on the growing logistics capabilities and offerings of GameStop, including the new ability to ship coast to coast uh, to the numbers. Shares of GameStop falling after earnings where revenue increased by about 5%. EPS, a 76 cent per, uh, per share loss. We're not comparing to estimates, but just for context, a year ago, the brick-and-mortar retailer posted a loss of $1.40 a share. So no guidance and no concrete information about major shareholder Ryan Cohen's transformation strategy, but three interesting developments. First, GameStop has said the SEC has requested additional documents related to an SEC probe into the trading activity of GameStop first announced back in May. Also, the company says it has leased a 530,000-square-foot fulfillment center in Nevada and a customer care center in South Florida. Kind of sounds like a move towards the strategy to become an online retailer announced by Ryan Cohen. Also, about a half an hour before the bell, AMC CEO Adam Aaron announced a potential partnership with GameStop on another outlet. Both stocks, they briefly spiked up about a percent, then they dipped back down. GameStop trading volume right around its 30-day moving average before the bell, with shares falling after hours, we're going to have to see how retail investors react and if that volume story changes. Melissa, back over to you. Frank, Frank thank you, Frank Holland. Um, Pete, I feel like you traffic in some of these names. At least the AMC you do. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of these various names that I've definitely been a part of. I think GameStop's been one that I've sort of steered away from, Mel, especially of late. I did trade it early on, but... I'll tell you what, it's still less about the earnings and more about what this company is and why it's where it's trading right now. I mean, let's be honest, when you look at the 52-week range of where the stock has been from from lows to highs, it's absolutely ridiculous. And what the options were telling us today was we were looking for something close to about a 15% move in the after hours. We are not getting that. As a matter of fact, the implied volatilities of the options were over 240 implied uh, volatility. So just an incredible number. That number is going to come down in a, in a hurry. But let's not forget, it's still a stock that has a fairly decent short interest, nothing close to what, to what it once was. But, you know, it's, it's not trading off of earnings. This is a stock that's trading far more on different types of momentum and all of, of the different things in that category when we talk about these meme stocks. 
All right. Coming up, a crypto crackdown. Coinbase shares sinking as regulators take aim. The full details on what sent this stock falling more than 3% today. And later, the epic battle brewing over payment for order flow. In one corner, former FDIC chair Sheila Baer. She's out with a new op-ed today calling on the SEC to do more to curb this practice. She will join us ahead. In the other corner, Virtue CEO Douglas Sifu. He totally disagrees, calls the op-ed factually flawed. Those are his words. He'll make his case. Don't go anywhere. That's when he's back in two. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of Chipotle getting a pop today. Cowan going to a new street high price target of 2250 bucks on the stock. That's about 17% higher than today's closing price. The stock is already up nearly 40% this year. Guy, what's your take? You, know, you, you say that knowing full well what my take <laughs> is. I mean, it just yet again, an, a, a, an example of the burrito blowout playing its course amongst many analysts in the street. We've been bullish in this name now for quite some time. This is one of the great uh, turnaround stories of the last 20, 25 years or so. And I think you could absolutely see that price target in the earnings in October. Look at their digital sales growth. It's ridiculous. And as you know, you know, I'm a Qdoba guy, but I love what CMG is doing. So good for them on the burrito blowout front. Karen, I know it's probably too expensive for your taste. Um, no pun intended. Yeah, um, <laughs> but what do you make of this stock? I can afford it, but yes, I, um, it's yeah, it's too expensive for my taste. Although the execution here has been flawless, as Guy talked about digital sales. So you know, clearly they were able to pivot during the pandemic. They were wildly successful at that. That's going to stay with them, and they're the master of that so far. I do own Starbucks, which isn't cheap either. I hope they get as much traction, as much profitability uh, from their digital uh, as, I mean, Chipotle has just done a phenomenal job. At what point is it too expensive? I don't know. I would have said that hundreds of dollars ago. So good for them. It's interesting to me, though, that the analysts are sort of all fighting over themselves. Who can be the highest on the street? We've seen that a few times. We'll see that tomorrow um, with RH and Lulu as well. Yeah, that, that kind of um, fight doesn't always end well when you're striving to be the highest on the street. Digital strategy is fantastic. And what they've been doing even beyond that, Pete, in terms of loyalty, customer loyalty programs and, yes. and new menu items, they've really been innovating as well. Absolutely. Brian Nichols done an unbelievable job. He comes over from Taco Bell and, and he absolutely transforms a company that had safety issues. They had a terrible experience sort of a, a thing going on. 
and that all changed. And he literally has made that change over the past couple of years. But it almost happened immediately. I mean, he was very aggressive on what the path was going to be so that they could become the company that they have become now, which is absolutely almost flawless. I know that they are stretched. When you look at these numbers and you look at what the PE is for a fast food company, it is outrageous. But when you look at the execution, the digital growth that both uh, Karen and Guy were talking about, I mean, they've done an amazing job, Mel, and they've, they've obviously shifted away from safety and, as you said, innovated the menu as well. So they've, they've really done everything that they needed to do, and, and I think going forward, if they can continue to execute the way they have, and by the way, the loyalty that you brought up, when you look at what's going on and they were able to raise some of the prices, but also he was telling everybody, hey, look, we're also raising the pay that we're giving the, the employees. People like that sort of an experience as well. They like the fact that this is a company that cares about their employees. So I think that's a big part of why this company is so they've, they've got the loyalty that they've got, because People see this company as part of their own, and, and it's it's amazing experience that he's been able to create. All right. Coming up, the epic battle over payment for order flow. Former FDIC Chair Sheila Bear coming out swinging today with a new op-ed. She says the SEC needs to do more to level the playing field. She'll make her case straight ahead. Then you'll hear from a man whose business pays for order flow. Virtu CEO Douglas Sipu will join us as well. He says an SEC crackdown would be absurd. We've got both sides of this big debate coming up with Fast Money Returns. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? The real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back to Fast Money. Former FDIC Chair Sheila Baer calling for a crackdown on payment for order flow in an op-ed published today in the Financial Times. Baer saying the practice lacks transparency and hurts public markets. Sheila Baer is with us live tonight. We're also going to hear from Virtu CEO Doug Sifu. He's taking the other side of this debate. His company is one of the wholesalers that pays for order flow. Says an SEC crackdown would be absurd. He will make his case straight ahead. But we first want to start off by talking about the op-ed that is getting a lot of buzz today. Um, Sheila, welcome back to Fast Money. It's great to have you have you with us. How does it hurt the public markets? Well, it, 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 it impedes competition. So you don't have to publish the best price to draw an order. You just pay some broker to send the order your way. And then you decide whether you want to take it or not. If you take it, you've got to provide a little bitty uh, bit of uh, incremental price improvement on whatever the, the national uh, best bid ask is. Or, or you can just send it to an exchange. It's your option. But that, you know, it impedes competition. You don't have to compete based on getting the order based on your quote. You're going to hide your trading interests. And that's exactly what's going on. There are two trading interests. Some of that's being reflected in payments to brokers as opposed to giving narrower spreads to uh, retail traders. I know that's hard <laughs> for them to understand. They like the commission-free trading. But really, believe me, they're still paying for it just with poor quality executions. So, so you're saying that it's not transparent in that retail traders, when you're getting a well, free trade, you're actually paying you for are. it by not getting the best price? You're not getting the best price. Yeah. Exactly right. You're, they, they are hiding their trading interest. They don't have to display it. They don't have to publish it to you because they can pay for your order. They don't have to attract your order by offering the best price. So they're giving you an inferior execution. 
taking some of the money they would have been willing to pay and giving it to your broker. That's really what's going on. If a retail investor doesn't like this payment for order flow, Sheila, they could um, go to a broker where they have the option um, to That's turn true. that off. And so why well, is this an issue? I mean, it's, it's up to the consumer, right, to do his or her homework and yeah. decide what, uh, you know, if they want to pay for it, in, whether it be a, a trading commission or pay for it in terms mm-hmm. of maybe not as good of a price. Well, that's that's true. There are some brokers like Fidelity that, that do not pay for order flow, and they also don't charge commissions. So that may be the best of both worlds. Sure, uh, you can you can make that choice. But look, this is an inherent conflict of interest. I mean, should our regulations permit this kind of conduct? The, the current situation hurts the, the quality and the, and the depth of the markets because again, it doesn't require market makers to compete based on price. If they had to compete on price, you would see more liquid markets and narrower spreads. So there is a a larger public policy issue in terms of the impact on market structure. But also, it's just an apparent conflict of interest. But usually, those things are frowned upon, or or if not, uh, at least made illegal by regulators. You know, a while back, the CEO of Robinhood, Vlad Tenev, um, Sheila, has suggested that perhaps lit exchange or public exchanges should be able to price in fractions of pennies, and that could actually yeah. increase the comp- competition between them and wholesalers. Do you think that could be a solution, or does the whole system sort yeah. of need to be revamped? Yeah, so that kind of doubles down the other way. So basically say, okay, the exchange uh, market makers can also just uh, step in front of a published uh, quote with very minimal price improvement. I think that would really hurt uh, the depth and transparency of the markets. And it'd be an insider's game for everybody. No, I think we should go the opposite way. You know, maybe have a minimum check for off-exchange, a minimum uh, requirement for price improvement for off-exchange market makers. That would be a a half ground. Even better disclosure about what they're paying to their brokers uh, would would be improved from, from what we've got now. You know, another thing that I would hope retail traders would think about is when when these wholesalers pay for your order, they are not just paying to to get a little, you know, extra spread from you because they're not giving you the best bid ask. They're not giving you what they're truly willing to pay. But also they're getting your information. And these these retail orders are now moving stock prices. It didn't used to be the case. It used to be the institutional business, which had the, you know, the information advantage. But now, you know, as we've seen with GameStop and these other MIM stocks, the, these retail orders will move markets. And so, you know, having that inside look, that first look by paying for that order flow is also benefiting these big institutions. That's in your information. Your broker is selling it to a big market maker and they're benefiting from it. Um, some would say, Sheila, that the retail investor hasn't had it this good in a long time. Yeah, they are they actually work. are they actually being? I mean, do you think that they're actually being cheated yeah. by payment for order flow? And we're talking about fractions so, of pennies here. Yeah, well, if you do a lot of trading, that pretty soon it's real money. Look, nobody wants to go back to twenty five dollar commissions. No, the fact that we have very low commissions, and I think some, you know, there are some brokers who are not doing payment for order flow and also not charging commissions, you can still make money off of trading, you know, offer the best bid and price, be, be smarter than everybody else in terms of this trading sucks. You can make money that way. But it, it, it's, you know, it's, it's a conflict. And they are, you know, it's just, they're not getting reduced costs, they're getting less transparent cost. So yes, it has it improved. Yes, technology has enabled a lot of that. But we don't need payment for order flow to drive down cost. I mean, technology really has been the lion's share of that. And we'll continue to have that benefit, even if they do away with payment for order flow, the SEC. If you had it your way, Sheila, would this be banned? 
Would be would payment for order flow well, be I, eliminated I, from I the system in, entirely? Yeah, I think in a, I, I think in an ideal world, market makers would draw orders based on publishing the best price, publishing the best bid ask. And yes, I think that would be the ideal world. I full, this has been going on since the 1980s. Bernie Madoff pioneered it to when I was working for the New York Stock Exchange. So this has been around for a long time. It's, it's been a big factor in the fragmentation and less transparency in our markets. I think those are harmful. Do I think we'll actually get a ban? Probably not. But I think it's good to show a spotlight on it, educate retail traders, retail traders about what's going on. And perhaps there are some middle ground in terms of reforms uh, that the SEC could institute that at least improve the situation. You know, I think pretty. I think we're the only ones that allow this. They don't allow it in the UK. They took a look at it a long time ago and said, ooh, we don't want that. They were right. Uh, it is an inherent conflict. But the genie's out of the bottle. So I'm hoping that they can at least curb it, if not ban it. Sheila, I have the utmost respect for you. you. Know that, and thanks for coming on the show. We're going to hear from Doug in a second, sure. and this is a complete, sure. you know, non sequitur to a certain extent. But here we are talking about, in my opinion, Mel said it. You know, playing field that's never been more level. And I understand, you know, you can get exercised about this. But last night we broke in with a story about Robert Kaplan trading stocks, and you know, everything he did was above board. And I'm not suggesting any impropriety. Then you have congressmen and women allowed to trade stocks. To me, you talk about an unlevel <laughs> playing field. That. That's where it lies. So, you know, we can talk about tenths of a penny all night long. But, you know, this to me is why people get so exercised and why the, you know, playing field that's supposed to be level is anything but. Yeah. Well, you know, there is uh, I, I'm not going to defend all these other abuses that are going on. This is one of many issues uh, that plague uh, securities trading these days. And yeah, there are a lot of conflicts everywhere. I don't, you know, two wrongs or three wrongs or ten wrongs don't make a right. I'm focused on payment for order flow now. I think that is an inherent conflict. I think brokers should worry about getting the best price for their their uh, their customers, and I don't think they should worry about trying to get the best deal for themselves. And I do think, again, there are some brokers that do it already, no commissions, and they don't pay for order flow. So that would be the ideal. And if some brokers can do it, you got to ask, but well, why all can't? Why can't all brokers do it? You got to, you know, hold your nose and look at that enforcement case against Robinhood. There was an explicit trade-off. They were taking worse executions for their customers to get more in payment for order flow. This is coming out of the pockets of retail traders based on poor quality executions. It's less transparent. It's harder to explain. I get the realities of that. That's why I don't think we'll ever get the message through in a way where it will be broadly accepted to stop this practice. But I do think it is possible to have either zero or very low commissions without payment order flow. And I would love for things to move in that direction. Sheila, before we let you go, I want to ask you about yeah. uh, some books that you have coming out next week. Yeah. This is very exciting. Yes. Right. Well, thank you for asking. Yes, I've got I wrote a series for uh, children called Money Tales for Albert Whitman. We have two more. They're two out already. There's six altogether, two coming out September 15th. One, Billy the Borrowing Bluefoot of Boobies about uh, unaffordable uh, borrowing and why the, the problems with compounding interest when you don't pay off your debt. The other is Princess Persephone Loses the Castle. It's about mortgage lending and being careful and not getting a mortgage you can't afford. So, yeah, I've had a lot of fun. They're, they're, they're fun. They're entertaining. The kids will like them. They'll giggle. I think the parents will enjoy reading them with their kids. So, yes, feel very strongly about this. And, and thank you for asking me about it. 
I will wait till my twins turn two till I start reading them, uh, <laughs> telling them about the, the blue-footed booby. <laughs> Sheila, great to see you. Thank you. Nice to see Sheila you. Thanks there. for having me. Good all bye. right, let's get back to the payment for order flow debate. Get the other side of this all. Joining us now is Doug Sifu, the CEO of Virtu Financial. Um, pay, payment for order flow is a part of your business, Doug. Um, yep. What are you What are you paying for? Well, I just want to, you know, uh, commend uh, 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 Ms. Baer because, uh, you know, she's a very, very talented, smart person. But the marketplace she's describing really is 1995. I mean, the ideal marketplace that she described where brokers are routing solely based on best price and wholesalers are competing solely on best price is the marketplace that exists today. So, you know, her facts are just inaccurate. She, I'm sure, writes wonderful children's books. I don't want to disparage her. I think she's incredibly intelligent and she served this country terrifically, but she just has not kept up with advancement in the marketplace. So not a single retail broker that takes payment for order flow will route based on the amount of payment. They're, ba- they're routing to the wholesalers solely based on the best price that we are competing for. So as Guy said, we have a system today where retail investors for zero commission can get a price that is at or better than they can get on the any of the stock exchanges. And the aggregate amount of price improvement that we provided as an industry in 2020 was approximately $11 billion. Right, So we should all be proud of that. The execution that a retail client gets today is frankly better than what any institutional client could get in the United States. So with all due respect to Ms. Baer, who is a terrific public servant, she's really just out of her depth here. Um, there, there will be some out there, Doug, who argue that that best price is set based on the NBBO, and that price is distorted because so much volume is traded off exchange. The NBBO price is set on public exchanges or, or lit exchanges, but right. 47% of total volume goes off exchange. So how can we know what that best price is when so much is traded off that lit exchange? Yeah, the other factual error that she had is every time we fill as a wholesaler, every time there's an off-exchange trade, there's an immediate print to the marketplace, right? So the market knows what the subpenny pricing would be. So there's no information asymmetry to the wholesaler. If anything, it works in reverse. We sit there prepared. We've got bids and offers in 8,000 reg NMS names, individual companies and ETFs, and we have to take the flow. So she's just factually incorrect. We don't have a choice. We don't cherry pick it. We don't route it to an exchange. We are contractually obligated to price improve and provide filled execution on every single order that hits our environment. Right. So at the end of the day, if if folks want to come up with a different metric for us to price improve off of, we're happy to do that. The NBBO today is the only agreed upon metric. People say it doesn't include odd lots. Include odd lots. Tighten it up. Still, the the value provided by wholesalers is unique, is unique, and we should be very proud of the service that we provide and that the the environment and the and the execution quality that retail clients have in this in this country, frankly, is unparalleled. I don't know where where she's coming from. I don't know, like, who's really complaining about this? Retail clients have zero commission trading to get better prices than the institutions. The institutional clients that we represent that are our clients, they're not really complaining about it either. So I don't know who, who's the plaintiff here. Who's really the person making the point? Who's behind all of this, you know, uh, controversy? There really isn't a right. controversy. When you look yeah. at the facts and data, there is no there is no doubt that this is the best marketplace in the world. Doug, you know, there's an army 
of people on Twitter. I'm not saying that these people yep. are, should be the arbiters or final arbiters of whether or not the system is fair, but there is a perception that the system is fair. And in certain shares where the bulk of the volume of the shares are not, they don't go to lit exchanges, they're going to wholesalers, like, let's say, right. let's just throw it out in AMC, that there is a perception that they are really not getting the best price because it's so distorted, that NVBO is so distorted because so much of that volume of that share goes off exchange. Can you address that? Is there some yeah. Shares yeah, the, where, the irony, where pricing is more distorted than others? Sure. Obviously, there are stocks that are more of interest to retail investors. And so you're going to have more of that sent by the, the retail brokers to wholesalers. There are approximately 200 retail brokers, wealth managers in this country. About 10 of them take payment for order flow. The other 190 do not. And they still send their orders to a wholesaler. Why? They don't have an economic interest. There's no inherent conflict that she alleges. They send it because, because of the segmentation of that order flow. Ironically, all of the folks that you just you know, mentioned that are complaining, they're actually getting better execution than an institutional client that's going to pay us a commission that doesn't get any price improvement. So the retail folks that are watching this, you're getting better execution with immediacy, with a full print to the tape. Than as compared to any institutional investor in this country, so I, I get it. It's a, it's a it's a political pinata right now. It's very easy to say dark pools and and Robinhood and Citadel and all this stuff happened. But when you dig down and you look at the facts and you look at the data, and that's what sensible regulators have done in this country for the last 30 years. Every time they have looked at this practice mm-hmm. and looked at the ecosystem, they concluded it inures to the benefit of the retail investors. And there's not another system in this in this world, frankly, that is as beneficial to retail as the United States. I will debate anybody with that publicly. Uh-huh. We've been 100 percent transparent with the data. It's all out there. We're a public company. We're very proud of the service we provide. Have you talked to Gary Gensler? And do you think that he's, um, you know, off base when he says that banning payment for order flow is on the table? No, I mean, it's his table. Right. So he, he's, he's not off base and he's a brilliant man. He's a very smart guy. We're scheduled to speak with him, I believe, next week. We've spoken to dozens of folks on Capitol Hill. We've spoken to all the commissioners. We've spoken to the staff. We've provided reams of data. Virtue is all about transparency. And we're happy to be an intelligent part of this, this of this discussion. The SEC has historically always reacted to facts and to data. The facts here are compelling. Eleven billion dollars of price improvement. Right. Immediacy around execution. One hundred percent transparency. No information advantage. When you lay all those facts on the table and you get rid of the histrionics that Sheila Bear is throwing out there and you look at facts, it is so compelling. The notion that you would change that system because of some innuendo or rumor to me is just absurd. That's the word I used in Twitter. Histrionics is a strong term, Doug. Um, One last, last question, and that is if payment for order flow is banned, what happens with your company? I mean, what happens... I mean, ironically, it's an expense. To earnings, right? so to you, anything. Right, it's an expense. So, like, in theory, like, our bottom line would improve. So you may say to yourself, why are we doing this? Because I think it's the right thing. I think payment for order flow has created innovation and has enabled a company like Robinhood, which is a client of ours, to offer commission-free trading and to democratize the market and make uh, trading more available, more openly available. I believe in that passionately. I believe in what we have done with them. So from a virtue perspective, you know, our earnings would probably go up. So, sure, I have an interest in this. Robinhood is a client or other clients that take payment for order flow. We have another 190 retail clients that don't take a penny of payment for order flow, and they continue to use our services. Again, when you look at the facts and you get past the histrionics, I'll use the strong word again, and the innuendo and the rumors, she doesn't present a single piece of data behind anything that she just said. All I have is data, and all I have are the facts, and they are compelling. 
Doug, thanks so much for joining us. Great thanks. Appreciate the you. time. Doug Pleasure. Sifu of Virtu Financial. Pete, what's your take? You know, I find myself on the side with Doug. As a former market maker, I stood on the trading floors in Chicago for a long time, Mel, as you know. And and I got to tell you something. I think he's right. It is the data. And, it, and we're not talking about 1995. I mean, we have progressed and things have changed. And the speed of the markets is why we trade the kinds of volumes that he's talking about, $11 billion. I mean, when, when we talk about this day in and day out, and I see what he's saying about this, the, where is the data and show us how we are doing something that is in any way illegal or, or somehow ripping off the customer. I think he's got, he makes great points, and I, I have to agree 100%. It's why, however, why I left the trading floors, because the speed of the game and everything else, it turned into a far more digital type of world because you no longer could stand down there. You can't compete with what's going on with companies like Virtu. Yeah. Karen? So I know we goodbye the guests, but I think your question was really at the heart of the matter. What happens if that goes away? And I found it a little hard to believe. Please, I, I want to know the answer if, if my supposition here is wrong. He said, okay, a cost of his would go away. But clearly some revenue somewhere, right, some benefit would go away. I don't think he's buying that just for cost. So what is the revenue from that? So how do they make money? How much money do they make off that? I'd be interested to know. I'm not saying people shouldn't make money off a business, but uh, it seems like they wouldn't buy it, buy the order flow, if it weren't valuable somehow. How valuable is it? It's it's not a chair. Virtu Financial is not a charity, Guy Dami. They're not doing it out of goodness of their own hearts. Right, nor should it be. But to say they think it's the right thing to do, Guy, do you buy that? They do it just because it's the right yeah, thing listen, to do. Listen, I'm, I'm, I'm 100%, and it's, I got no horse in this race, but I'm 100% with Doug on this. I thought he came and he acquitted himself extraordinarily well. And he took, listen, Sheila Bear is brilliant. I think a lot of what's going on here is absolutely political. It, it really resonates with a large part of the audience that might not understand some of the nuances of what's going on here. The, the playing field, I'll say it again for the hundredth time, has never been more level for the uh, retail investor, and that's for a lot of different reasons. So, you know, I think Doug is a, is a gentleman for coming on. I thought he, he, he made excellent points, and I'll say it again. We're looking at the wrong thing. I'll say this again. You should be looking at what's going on with people that are allowed to trade in positions where, quite frankly, they shouldn't be allowed to trade. You want to talk about a rigged game? There's your rigged game. Coming up, we're going to take another look at GameStop. Uh, that stock is taking a big leg lower. We've got much more on this move next. Plus, AMC is doing something it has never done before. The theater chain making a $25 million bet on the future with the help of some serious star power. And just moments ago, Elizabeth Holmes leaving the courthouse after day one of her trial. trial. We're following the latest on all of this. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. I want to take another look at GameStop. It is taking a big leg lower in the after-hour session. Apparently, we had mentioned that the conference call was going on. It was a remarkably short conference call. Apparently, it lasted about eight minutes. Um, there, there was no uh, CFO uh, talk there. The CFO didn't, didn't go on the call, uh, and they didn't give any forecasts, uh, Karen. Uh, you know, an eight-minute conference call yeah. is usually not a very good sign um, we did see the stock move lower right. by as much as 12% at one point on this. 
Yeah, this is like no other company, though. Well, maybe there's <laughs> one or two others, but th this is their M.O. for the call, right? This whole Pete, as Pete said before, this has nothing to do with fundamentals, nothing to do with earnings. Um, and so why spend time talking about that, it seems, since, you know, people don't really want to peg the valuation here to earnings or anything like that. So let's not spend time with it. That shareholder base, you'd think they'd be pretty up in arms if they wanted to hear more. But I, I don't know. <laughs> it's crazy. It's about something else completely. Yeah. All right. It's uh, down 8 percent right now. Meantime, uh, AMC making a big bet on its future with the help of some serious star power. Check it out. We come to this place for magic. We come to AMC theaters to laugh, to cry, to care, because we need that. All of us. That that is AMC's first ever national TV commercial. It features Academy Award winner Nicole Kidman. It hits the airwaves on Sunday. The cost of the ad campaign, 25 million bucks. Um, guy, I don't know, she was pretty convincing, I thought. <laughs> yeah, money well spent when you're a $25 billion company. I, you know, listen, it's great. I, and I'd love to go back to a movie theater. I can't wait to watch the next Top Gun or James, whatever's coming out, without question. Get my milk duds and have a ball. But it's a failed business model. When things were going great for them, it was still a failed business model. And nothing's changed. The only thing that's changed is there's an army of people now behind the stock, which, quite frankly, could be extraordinarily powerful for them. So great job hiring probably Nicole Kidman to do this. And maybe the stock does go higher. But again, just to reiterate, the whole short uh, squeeze thesis to me is sort of a bit of a red herring. Stock trades 100 million shares a day. If you're short the stock, you have ample opportunity, not only on a daily basis, but on a minute by minute basis to cover. So there's clearly something else going on here. When was the last time you traded this stock, Pete? Um, not that terribly long ago, Mel, probably within the last month or so. But, you know, there are so many of these names now that are under this category that we talk about each and every day. I mean, for, for the right reasons. I mean, Guy just mentioned, look at the volumes in the stock and the shares, but also look at the volumes in the options markets. I was just looking at AMC today, traded 770,000 contracts today. Uh, that's a huge number, Mel. I mean, Apple traded 1.4 million. Uh, it, it gives you a little perspective. And yet, uh, you know, we continue to see this day in and day out. There are probably four, five, six different names each and every day. Some of them I can't even mention because of the market caps and, and, and how small they are. But the volumes, the sheer volumes in the stocks and the options are absolutely um, in the stratosphere right now. So there's a lot of activity. I don't know necessarily that I just credit all that to Robin Hood, but I, but I do see a lot of incredible activity every single day now and it started the beginning of the year and it's gone on and we just continue to add names to the list all the time amc still 18 percent short interest so there are some shorts out there and that seems to be part of the the categories that everybody's looking at when they're trying to get involved in many of these stocks all right speaking of options one solar name is lighting up the options pits um, we've got the trade when fast money returns Check out shares of First Solar. The stock hasn't had the brightest of years so far, but today's options activity went supernova. Mike Coe joins us to shed some light on the action. Mike. 
Yeah, so on the back of that uh, report that came out of the Biden administration about renewable energy, we saw a flurry of very bullish activity. First Solar traded more than 13 times its average daily call volume and calls out pace puts by about 7 to 1. The most active options, all very short-dated and leading the pack, were the weekly 105 strike calls. About 24,000 of those traded for an average price of about 29 cents. Of course, that's well out of the money, so probably most of that activity are people just making short-term bets, just betting that those calls will appreciate, because the likelihood that those end up in the money by the time they expire on Friday is just 2%. All right, Mike, thanks for that. Mike Co. for more Options Action, be sure to tune into the full show. That's Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Up next, Final Trades. Time for the Final Trade. Let's go around the horn. Karen Feinerman. Yes, you know, with all this trading around, I think of Morgan Stanley, that E-Trade acquisition coming up on a year. They stole it. I like Morgan Stanley's transformations. MS. Pete. I got a lot of exposure already, Mel, in the energy space, but I'm seeing some huge call buying today in ExxonMobil. I think I'm going to be jumping in there tomorrow. Guy. That comes out XOM, by the way, Mel. So I'm also seeing huge call buying in... Cheeseburgers, about eight of them tonight for me, comes out MCD. I hope not, eight. That'll be trouble for you. Thanks for watching Fast Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.